Welcome to another episode of Our Very Own Balanced Men. If you're a new listener to the show, I encourage you to share it with any brothers that you feel would enjoy the podcast, or maybe even just find something useful out of one of our previous episodes. If you're a returning listener, thanks for tuning in again. I'm excited about this week's guest as we're joined by Seth Irby. Seth was recently named the Chief Marketing and Customer Experience Officer for LWCC which is one of Louisiana's largest insurance companies. In this role, Seth is leading a marketing and branding overhaul, overseeing customer-facing teams, and spearheading philanthropic initiatives to make a transformational impact on Louisiana's economy and its workforce. Prior to this position, Seth was a senior consultant at Emergent Method. In his three years with the firm, he completed 20-plus strategic planning projects, facilitated over 150 leadership training and development sessions, and he led outreach and engagement efforts for dozens of government agencies. Prior to Emergent Method, Seth served as SIGIP's managing director where he managed a 50-person staff that oversaw the creation and implementation of national priorities, goals, and assessment models. Seth graduated from Louisiana State University in 2011, where he earned his Bachelor of Arts from the Manship School of Mass Communication with a concentration in political communication. He has also completed certificate programs at Harvard Business School and at the Robbins School of Business at the University of Richmond. This brother is wildly known as one of the best SIGEP presenters and public speakers, and I am honored to have him on our podcast. That being said, let's dive right in. Well, we are joined today by the man, the myth, the legend himself, Seth Irby. Seth, thanks for being on the podcast. Thanks for having me, Caleb. So I want to dive right in and not waste any time. Uh, you had quite the undergraduate experience, right? I mean, stepping up and serving as president at LSU. And during your time, right, your chapter grew 60 plus men and ended up with a buck cup as well. So pretty transformative years. Tell me, like, what was the most impactful part of your experience as chapter president at LSU? Most impactful part, I believe it, it had a good, it was a tough SEC Greek community. You know, a lot of the stereotypes that you hear about fraternities, a lot of those are true. As you look around the, the South and, and specifically big SEC schools and, and the the LSU Greek community is is a tough one in terms of peer pressure uh, for for you know really moving towards the norm, and I think the most powerful experience, impactful experience, was watching a group of guys that resisted that norm, that shattered a lot of those stereotypes, but most importantly, found success doing so. Um, it, it's hard to be different if you're not going to be successful doing so. But once you find that success, and we found that success. We, I think we learned a valuable life lesson, not just for SIGF, but that, that many of us have taken on throughout our professional careers. Wow. And, and I know, too, I mean, that experience <clears throat> as chapter president, it always wasn't rainbows and sunshine. Um, I know during the SIGF leadership dilemma, you shared that journey as, you know, you've got a, an event and somebody ends up being hospitalized. Uh, so you navigated and got some leadership experience through crisis. So as somebody that served through that, like what would your 
go-to advice be for an undergraduate chapter leader that is navigating through like an incident like that or, or, or just a moment of crisis within their chapter? Biggest piece that I would give through, through crisis is leaning on mentors. You know, we, especially as undergraduates, um, I think when I went into to presidency, I thought I knew everything. You know, I, I, I lacked zero confidence, right? But I quickly found out that that wasn't the case. And I was, I was very lucky to be surrounded by a group of alumni that wanted me to engage them. And I, I called them often, you know, every step of the way. Um, and I think at first I thought that was weakness, but I quickly realized that it was, it was the biggest strength that, that I had. So you, as, as chapter president, just to back up, I mean, you're running a small business, especially some of our chapters that are 100 plus men, you know, with, with tens of thousands of dollars of budget. I mean, there, there are plenty of professionals in their 30s that, that don't have the amount of responsibility that our chapter presidents have. So don't, don't do it by yourself. Lean on people that have that business and, and real world experience and have that leadership experience, um, and, and especially through through crisis. You know, it's interesting to talk about crisis given the the world state that that we're in. And one of the quotes that I saw early on in, in COVID nineteen is that crisis doesn't create character; it reveals it. Mm. I think that's been true over the last several months. You know, yes, you can get stronger through adversity, but at the end of the day, your true colors are going to show. Uh, and, and my advice to chapter presidents out there going through crisis is lean on those values, lean on, on your true colors because they'll be revealed. Wow. We're not even five minutes in and, and Seth's already dropping some pretty valuable tidbits and nuggets of wisdom. I, I love that. Um, so following your undergraduate journey too, you've, you had a, you spent a few years on the headquarters staff as well. So what initially drew you into to want to work on, on the headquarters staff? Obviously, a passion for, for SIGAP, but I think a, a bigger part of it was probably selfish. I mean, I, I'm looking at the people that were on headquarters staff, the regional directors that I met, their professionalism, um, their maturity, and frankly, what they were going on to do professionally after SIGAP was something that, that I wanted to, to embody. And I saw that, that being on staff, the, the experience that it gave you, uh, you were able to, to run circles around your peers. So. I think a lot of it was selfish in, in terms of wanting to develop my, you know, my leadership skills, my soft skills, um, and really learn to, to be a problem solver and, and a consultant. Uh, so that that was a big piece of it. The other the other piece of it was I didn't know what I wanted to do long time. I still don't know professionally, and it, it was an opportunity to gain exposure to a number of different industries, uh, a, a lot of people, a lot of problems, a lot of opportunities. Uh, that I wouldn't get if I specialized in one thing right out of right out of school. Nice. And then you spent quite a few years there too. Uh, what was it? Five total years with HQ. And I know that in, in one of your speeches, you mentioned how working on the HQ staff, you see the best and the worst of SIGEP. And so take me through yeah. like what kept that passion fueled for you? I mean, as you worked your way on HQ and eventually serving as a managing director, what what kept that fire stoked for you? Yeah, I often say that working for SIGEP is not a job, it's a lifestyle. I mean, many of the people on SIGEP staff work 70, 80 hours a week. You're, you're traveling all the time. I was doing 150 flights a year. Um, I was spending you know more time away from home than I was there a, a lot of times. So you need that fire to, to keep you going. I, I believe it comes down to seeing 
to get done right and the power of what happens when it is done right. You know, it, it's meeting the Caleb's of the world. It's meeting the guys that, um, that have not only made their chapters better, but they've become better people because of the organization and gone on to, to do phenomenal things. And you, working on steps, you have to have this belief every day that the fate of Sigep is in your hands. And if you don't do your job right, then the Caleb's of the world will never join our, uh, our chapters across the country, and they'll never have the opportunity to, to take advantage of what SIGEP offers. Um, so I think that fire comes down to the belief that the fate of SIGEP is in your hands, and you've got to do everything you can to, to keep that alive. Wow. Yeah, keeping that fire stoked. I can't even imagine 150 flights a year. Uh, that's amazing. It was a lot. And so, especially too with your time, I mean, obviously you're making an impact in all of your different roles, um, but especially as, as you were serving as managing director, that's when the fraternity on, on a national level shifted away from the pledging model uh, to the BMP. And that was a pretty impactful experience. Can, can you take us through that from, from your lens as you're sitting there as managing director? What was that process and that moment when it officially passed a conclave? What was that all like? was definitely one of the biggest just professional and personal highs that I've had. I mean, I, when people ask about, you know, my time on staff or what I learned or what I remember, um, I often tell the story about how, how all that came to be. But the, you know, the shorter, the short version is in, I'll, I'll get my years mixed up uh, at times. But I think it was 2014, you know, Tucker, Tucker Hips, who was a, a member at our Clemson chapter, um, died from, from an accident that, uh, you know, there's there's a lot of debate about it, how it exactly happened, but um, we do know that you know it, it was he was going through the pledging process during during the time. And while I don't think that the, the chapter um, directly had anything to to do with with his death, um, I do think that he was in a chapter that was toxic and it, it was not helping him become a better person. And at that time, fraternity leadership, we all kind of looked at each other and said, like, this just has to stop. There's a better way to do things. We've had this model for 20 years, and we need to rip the Band-Aid off and show people why that this is a better way. But we also knew that it couldn't be a top-down decision. We knew that this had to be something that our undergraduates wanted. And so we helped form a committee of uh, about 10 undergrads from across the country early in the summer of 2015 and brought them together and said, look, if y'all want this, draft this piece of legislation, we'll support you, but you need to go talk to all of the, the chapter presidents that are gonna be voting on this from across the country. And they really took it and ran with it. I mean, uh, a lot of it was, was Max Fowler and Zach Knight from uh, the University of South Carolina, you know, ironically not, not far from, from Clipson. And we had members from Ohio State, we had guys from Florida, we had people all over, all over the country that, uh, that came together and formed this coalition. And they made calls to all these chapter presidents. And by the time we got to conclave, uh, I mean, it was, it was done. You know, it, it passed by 98% in, in legislation. And I think, the, you know, there are a lot of lessons to, to learn from it. One, capitalize on crisis, right? Don't, don't ever waste a, a crisis. Two, authorship drives ownership and ownership drives commitment. Um, you have guys that, they author that piece of legislation, but not only did they do that, they made every chapter president across the country that summer felt like they authored that piece of legislation and, mm -hmm. and they were a part of it. Um, and you got to work the halls. You know, you, you got to have conversations with people one-on-one -on -one when you want to, when you want to get something accomplished. Uh, 
Um, so yeah, I, I mean, the exact moment at Conclave, I get emotional talking about it because I think we saved lives. I think that not only is SIGEP better for, for what happened that day in legislation, I think the entire fraternity system is, is better uh, mm-hmm. because it showed that undergraduates across this country wanted to turn the page, wanted to go in a different direction with, with the fraternal movement. And, and that's about as powerful as it gets. Wow. Yeah, I, I appreciate you sharing that because I, I can't even imagine how powerful of a moment that would be uh, to be there at Conclave after, you know, so many uh, volunteers, but undergrads from across the country, you know, put their time and talents into that. Pretty cool. So then yeah. following nine, like four years of undergrad and then five years on the HQ staff, you've got, you know, nine years of, of the SIGEP lifestyle that you've been living, as you said. Uh, tell me, like, in, in what ways do you feel that uh, and what was the biggest way, I guess, that the, your nine years of heavy SIGEP involvement most prepared you for, for your SIGEP, for career after SIGEP and influenced uh, your life after rolling off staff? I mean, the list is long. I, and I tell, and I'm, I'm frank, I would tell people about that that are in the fraternity and outside of the fraternity. I am where I am professionally. Any ounce of success that I've had has been because of my time. Uh, with with SIGEP as an undergraduate, but but definitely on staff. I think the the biggest thing was work ethic. I mean, you, again, it's not a job, it's a lifestyle. And you you learn how to just outwork the the people around you because you you had to. And and a lot of that came through commitment. You know, you were committed to the organization beyond for for yourself, um, but for the thousands of undergraduates across the country, so it, it taught me the value of being committed to, to something bigger than yourself and how that drives you to, to treat something not like a job but, but like a mission that, that you're on. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've tried to approach every professional opportunity like that moving forward, you know, whether it was a project or, or a, a new opportunity and say, is this something that I can be as committed to as I, as I was my, my time on, on SIGGAP staff? Um, and then the, the last thing I think is just the value of, of people and mentorship. I talked about that, but you know, something that, that I learned from Bill Tragos on staff is that talent wins. You know, every time talent wins, you put the most talented people together, you're going to have the most dominant organization and, and you're going to win. And I saw that in our chapters across the country. I saw in our volunteer groups. Um, I saw it in the businesses that our alumni were in. The goal is to bring the most talented people together and then get out of their way. And that, that's the same mantra that I take to, to building teams now in, in my company. Wow. I love that. Another, yet another uh, of the dozens of tidbits of wisdom from uh, Mr. Tregos. Um, he, uh, he's not short of them and he's happy to provide them. Yeah. Uh, well, that, that podcast episode is going to have to be broken into two chunks for, for sure. To see about content. For two days. Yeah. Two days. <laughs> so, I know that you recently had uh, your first child, um, and yeah. uh, in the near f- in, in the future, if they end up going to to college, I'm sure the the Greek life discussion will will be had. Um, hopefully, a sig app. Um, but tell me, like, especially with like managing director, like you were looking at big picture of you know what does the sig app experience look like? What does the Greek life experience look like? So when the time comes for you know. Your, your, your kid to go to college, like what is it your hope is that, you know, the, the Greek life experience but the SIGEP experience as a whole looks like? Because that's, I mean, that's far off in the future um, and it's, it's crazy to think of, you know, how much 
since then the fraternity experience will change even just considering how much it's changed in the last five to ten years yeah i a, a couple of things and they're simple one would be i hope that greek organizations are places that attract the top talent on campus i mean i'd like to think that they are now some schools they are some schools they're they're not but ideally the top 10 percent of your university are joining Greek organizations. And again, to go back to my previous statement, when you get the top talent in an organization, you you win. So I hope that you know, when Davis goes to school, that it, it is what the best guys do, is, is join fraternities. I also hope that um, fraternities realize that, yes, you can have fun and you can throw parties, but more and more you've got to add value beyond that. And, and I, I think that that will, you, that will be the crossroads where fraternities either keep going or die off, um, especially you look at you know, just this pandemic uh, that we're in right now and people questioning the, the value of education and being together and, and why not do everything remote. I think there's a tremendous amount of value to, to being together, but it's not just about being together, it's about adding value to people's lives. And so people are gonna continue to question the decisions and the investments they make, and they're going to assess whether they add value or not. And so my hope is that when, you know, when he goes to school, his, his experience would be a lot like mine, which is it made me better in college and it prepared me for life after, after college. And if, if fraternities can stay laser focused on that, um, then, then I believe that's what's most important. Wow. Yeah, that's such a good point. And, and so kind of piggybacking off that, with all of the uncertainty, um, that that's going through uh, with with COVID nineteen and, and and you know kind of the the model that most chapters are having is shaken up. Like, what is your what would be your go to bit of advice for just any undergraduate brother across the country to to come out of this experience um, a, a better man and a better person? To come out of sorry to clarify the question to come out of the the current like pandemic that we're in. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so I, being present, like in making the most out of out of interactions when when you're there, and and I'd say that about in person interactions. I mean, I've been we, we've got a 275 person company. We've been operating remote, um, which is difficult, but we just started to phase back into some in person meetings, and I've found that they're extremely more productive than they were before this pandemic because we value the time, the in person time, and collaboration that that we have. Uh, I also think that this, I hope that this, at least it has for me personally, it's caused me to slow down and just be a little bit more in the moment. You know, I spent a, I spent a lot more time outside with, with my kid. Uh, I put away my phone during, during the evenings more. I just take life a little bit slower uh, when, when I can. And I hope that undergraduates across the country will appreciate um, that you don't always have to be engaged and consumed by that technology, but you can have the value of, of those of those personal relationships when we are able to enjoy them back in person. How precious that is, and not, and not taking it for granted, and, and being fully present, you know, with, within those interactions. Lovely. That's really great advice for for listeners, both uh, undergraduate and alumni alike. Um, so. Uh, one of my favorite questions to ask dedicated volunteers like such as yourself um, is, is just what keeps you giving back, right? Um, in terms of, of, of volunteers, like you spent the time on staff, but still a dedicated volunteer after rolling off. 
Like what has kept you so involved with this organization and to keep uh, pouring back into the organization as a whole? To me, for me, it is, it is the, the quality and the willingness of the undergraduates to, to listen. Yeah, you know, I quickly found out one time on staff that I thought I wanted to like go back and be on the ABC and help out with all this stuff. And really what I found was that I, I didn't have a passion for that as much as I had for, for mentoring guys, whether that was in their officer position or whether that was in uh, just their professional journey and, and their lives preparing for life after college. And so I quickly identified that for me, what kept what keeps me engaged is that guys want advice, they want help, um, they they want to get better, and their their commitment to doing so has uh, I, I think pleasantly surprised me. And so I'll I'll never turn down a phone call or an opportunity to to engage in that way because people answer the call for me, and it is it is the reason that I am where I am uh, through through that mentorship. So I mean, what to what keeps me going is, it, yes, it's paying it forward, but I'm consistently impressed um, with with our undergraduates' willingness to engage and commitment to, to learning as much as they can and, and improving. That's awesome. And um, as the biggest LSU fan or one of our biggest LSU, LSU <laughs> fans in the nation, uh, this is possibly the most important question of our interview. When can we expect a renaissance bid for uh, for Joe Burrow? <laughs> I mean, I'd give it to him yesterday <laughs> if, uh, if I could get in touch with him right now. Uh, yeah, he's a little busy. Look, I, I think we're going to let Joe focus on turning around one of the worst franchises in the NFL, and and then uh, and then we'll circle back that you know when, with him when he can show that he's not only a proven winner turning LSU around, but, but also the Cincinnati Bengals. Then, then at that point, I think he deserves a bit. Okay. That, that's solid. Well, I'll, I'll, uh, I'll keep an eye on that, and uh, hopefully we've, <laughs> we've got a future renaissance bid there. Oh, I love that. So much tidbits of wisdom throughout that out. But uh, now we're diving into the lightning round, my favorite, one of my favorite parts of the show where we try to squeeze out as much remaining knowledge out of our guests as we possibly can with yeah. the, the quick-hitting quick questions. So are you ready for the lightning round, Seth? Okay. Most impactful book that you've ever read? The, the Last Lecture by, by Randy Posh. Ah. It's, it's a simple but yet profound uh, book and, and really shows you not to take life for, for granted. Yeah, I love that. Powerful read. Um, best advice that you've received in your, in your life? I would say you, you never know the impact that you can make on someone. Any interaction, any, any day, um, don't underestimate the impact that, that you can have on, on someone's life and, appro- and approach relationships accordingly. Oh, that's awesome. Uh, similar to that question, I, I know that you've, you've encountered so many SIGEP mentors and, and SIGEPs. Um, but what would you say is, has been the most impactful SIGET mentor of yours? And, and what is the greatest lesson that you've learned from them? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I truly feel fortunate to have met some of the best that, that we have. And that was a credit to, to my, my staff experience. 
So it is a hard it is a hard one to answer, but I have I'd have to go with Steve Shanklin, you know, past current president, or the Golden Heart, and, and someone that I met in my undergraduate years and became a mentor to me in my undergraduate years. And you know, over the last eleven years has, has really just become a great friend and, and mentor. Um, and Steve, if you know Steve, Steve is full of, of lessons. So it's hard it's hard to think about, you know, the, the best piece of advice that, that I've gotten. But I think in terms of the biggest thing that's that Steve did for my SIGEP experience that translates into my life was shifting how I view the ritual, you know, as, as an event from from an event to a, a guide to live your best life and really helping the values of the fraternity come to life. Um, I think that was a piece of the, the SIGEP experience that I totally misunderstood. And Steve has a beautiful way of showing you that that, that book that we so often hide, it should really be the most public display that we have in terms of um, how, how to live out virtue, diligence, and, and brotherly love. Wow. Yeah, having a mentor like Steve Shanklin during your undergrad years, uh, pretty awesome. Um, so you have hypothetically a, a ginormous billboard for the entire world to see. Uh, what are you putting on that billboard and why? Likely a picture of Coach O and Joe Burrow holding the national championship trophy. Yeah, yeah, probably that. <laughs> oh, I love that with uh, with a little go tagus on the bottom. <laughs> That's right. That's right. That's right. <laughs> Perfect. And, and the final one is one that um, I have since Ruck stolen from my Ruck experience, and it's one of my favorites to ask on the show. Uh, the walkout song. What's your walkout song? <laughs> You're starting for LSU. Uh, you're walking out in the stadium. What's your walkout song, Seth? Man, well, to, to tie it back to LSU, I'd probably have to go with Call of Baton Rouge by, by Garth Brooks. Call of Baton Rouge. I like that. Wow. Well, what an, an intense episode filled with so many tidbits of wisdom, both from your undergraduate years, your, your time on HQ staff and life afterwards. Uh, thanks for taking time to hop on the show, Seth. I really appreciate it. Well, thanks for the opportunity, Kevin. Thanks for what you're doing. I, I have found in my time, as I mentioned, that there are so many great cigars across the country that have really powerful stories. And I think the best way that we can learn is is through those stories and, and hearing more about them. Uh, and that wouldn't happen if, if you aren't doing this. So thanks for what you're doing. And that wraps up this week's episode of Our Very Own Balanced Men. I hope you all enjoyed it and found something useful from the insight that Seth has to share. Uh, If you haven't already, feel free to like our Facebook page. And we'll see you next week for another episode of Our Very Own Balanced Men.